All right. Uh, pray with me, please. Father, we thank you for the opportunity once again to gather. Here we are, nearly 2,000 years later, still being created and fueled by this word of grace that Paul had taught to the elders at Ephesus. And here we are this morning, same word of grace and same great work of God happening. Would you do it afresh this morning in our midst? Would you build us up through the gospel? Holy Spirit, would you empower these words so that this witness glorifies you with strength? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, about two weeks ago, Che and I went to Colorado to a, a pastor's gathering with a, a movement of churches called Crossway Chapel. And one of the things that we, that we did the first day we got there is, was every church prepared this little uh, this video that kind of gave a, an overview of, of what's happening in, in each of these different churches in the movement. And what, what just blew me away was in video after video, baptisms, baptisms. Just all these people saying, I want to be identified with Jesus Christ. And it, it, it got Che and I just talking uh, on the trip, and, and we were talking on the way home, and I was, I was saying, I just have a few days to prepare because we, we didn't get home till late Wednesday night, and I don't think I'm going to be able to jump into 1 Corinthians um, again. So, and so we were just talking about what, what I could preach on. This is last, before last week's sermon, and Che, che said, what, what if we just talked about the mission? mission of the church. And so so that's what we did last week. And, and when we kind of got this huge, it was, it was almost like we we're in this glider 5,000 feet over the forest. Just this huge picture of what's God's mission. And I actually wasn't too happy with how far above the forest we we stayed for for the whole the whole sermon. I, I, I feel like this week I, I need to follow it up and in and, and, and this glider just kind of spiral down so that this big picture of God's mission actually touches our lives. And and I know we, we did get to that point, um, but I want to I want to keep spiraling down. I, I want big theology to produce real-life, practical application. So that's what we're going to do today. We want some, some, some practice, and we're just going to, we're going to spiral down. And, and you, you should know that both of these are important. The, the view at 5,000 feet or 30,000 feet is really important for the church. And it's also important that when we get down to the practicals, we know that when we're looking at these trees in the forest, that we're in a forest. And, and there's, there's, a, there's a, a lay to the land that we should be aware of. And so, we're, we're, both are important. You want to know the big picture story of what's happening in the Bible, and you want to know, what does it mean for me? And so, we're, we're going to try to connect those two. And the first thing I'm going to do is I'm just going to review what we talked about last week. Um, so, God's mission, I argued last week, God's mission is to create worshipers of God. God's going to reveal Himself, and then these creatures are going to praise Him. I talked about it in terms of revelation and celebration. God's on this mission to reveal the beauties of His excellencies. He's going to do it supremely in Jesus. And these people that Jesus saves are going to look to Jesus and see the glory of God revealed in Christ. And they are going to worship Him. And the mission is accomplished when that happens. Revelation, celebration, this is the theological bottom line. God is on a mission to create worshipers of His glory. That's the big 
theological, all-encompassing axiom. But you may have noticed, if if you've read this book, that the Bible doesn't spend most of its time focusing on the big, theological, heady axiom. Spends, spends a good amount of time on it, but most of the time, the Bible provides us with a story. Namely, the story of the unfolding story of Christ's kingdom. It's in this kingdom that the story of God's mission is accomplished. The mission to create worshipers of His glory is accomplished in the story of a kingdom in which God's own Son stars in the lead role as the Savior King. So if you actually want to know what God's mission is, practically speaking, if you want to move beyond the big, raw, theological statements, as in, what's He been up to in world history? Then you could say God is on a mission to establish Christ's kingdom. And it's in Christ's kingdom that He's going to put Himself on display and stir up worshipers. Christ's kingdom is the context in which God's mission is accomplished. So naturally, we just spent some time talking about the kingdom last week. Because this is where the rubber meets the road. What's the kingdom of God? Jesus shows up in Mark chapter 1 and proclaims, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Kingdom of God is is the the big picture story. So what is the kingdom of God? And I said there are four there are four elements that I think are probably crucial pillars in understanding what the kingdom of God is. God's redemptive rule over God's redeemed people who are in God's holy place enjoying God's presence. Rule, people, place, presence. So we looked at the picture of the kingdom in Eden. We saw rule, people, place, presence. We looked at a picture of the kingdom in Israel. God's rule over God's people in God's holy place, enjoying His presence. And and then we talked about how because of sin, Adam and Israel find themselves outside the kingdom. Outside the garden. Exiled outside the land of Israel because of sin. And, and, and both because of Adam, who is our representative, by the way. I talked about this in the Czech Republic. I had, this, I had two people come up on stage. I said, this person is Adam. This person is Jesus. And when you're born, Adam is your representative. And somebody in the crowd said, boo! <laughs> I don't want him. You have him. Sorry. That's, that's where you're born. In Adam. And he's outside the garden. That's humanity's state. Not only are you in that state because Adam's your representative, but you have complied very willingly all your life with Adam's anti-God behavior. You're a sinner. Right? Reality check. Probably nobody's going to argue with that. I'm a sinner. Okay, so Adam did what you do anyways. He refused to come under God's rule. And therefore is not God's people. Adam and his race are not under the rule of God by nature. They are not God's people. They are banished from God's place. And they don't enjoy His presence. No kingdom. And Jesus comes and resolves that situation when He arrives as the Savior King and dies for the sins of His people. And we looked at Revelation 21-22, we said, here's the completed picture of the kingdom. You've got God ruling as the Lamb. He's a redemptive ruler. The Lamb is on the throne. The redeemed people who have been written in the Lamb's book of life are there. God is their God. They are His people. It's a new Jerusalem temple. They're in God's holy place. And they're enjoying one another's presence. The kingdom of God is fulfilled. And the mission is fulfilled when God's people are eternally worshiping God as is revealed in the person and redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross. There they are in eternity. Mission accomplished. Okay? I mean, we're still at 30,000 feet. 
That's Genesis to Revelation, big picture. God's on a mission to create worshipers of His glory in the context of a kingdom which began to be revealed in Eden, went to Israel, exile from Eden, exile from Israel. Jesus shows up. The end picture is God's people in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying His presence. That's the big, that's the big picture. And where are we right now? We're only tasting that rev, that Revelation chapter 21 and 22. We're only tasting that reality in an, in an inaugural form. I said, I said, this is where we are. Wow. Okay. Our bulb is going out, as you might tell. And I don't know if you can lower that, Will. This, this, I showed you this picture last week. This is 1945 Time Magazine. Um, VJ Day. Sometime in mid-August. Victory over Japan. President Truman, I believe, at the time, yep, Truman announces the end of World War II. Times Square, this sailor, he's going around, he's just kissing women. He's just, it's just celebration. War is over. Well, actually, Japan doesn't officially surrender for two weeks. So there's an announcement that the war is over, and yet there's still some work to do. There's still some troops out there, there's still some things that need to be done. That's kind of where we are In redemptive history, the announcement has been made. The decisive work has been done. We're rejoicing at the announcement of the arrival of the kingdom. And yet, it's still unfolding. And because of that, there's still some work to do. Still some things that are going to happen. You remember Jesus tells the parable of the mustard seed? It's a mustard seed, you put, it, you put it in the ground, it's the smallest of all seeds, and you put it in the ground, and then in the end, it turns out to be this gigantic tree, all the bird, it's going to be totally apparent in the end. Right now, it's just this, it's undercover. Or the yeast, you put the yeast in, Jesus tells this parable, you put the yeast in the dough, and at first it doesn't look like anything, but in the end, it works its way through all the dough, it's going to be totally apparent in the end. So where are we? Well, the the mustard seed has been planted. The yeast has been folded in. But it's not a big tree yet. So we're in the inaugurated but not consummated reality. Not yet have the troops been sent home. There's still some mission left. We live in a time of mission. And we are those troops, so to speak, who haven't been called home yet. We still have work to do. We have an assignment. And it's important to know that we have an assignment because so far, I mean, we're still at the macro level. This is just a big forest of what God is doing. And we have an assignment. God's doing this big thing. He's revealing His excellencies in Christ in the context of a kingdom that's inaugurated, but it's not yet consummated. And we're this we're this mustard seed, I guess. I you know this big picture, and we're part of the story. Well, if you're at five thousand feet above the forest, I don't know where I'm supposed to land. Don't just tell me God's doing this big thing, and I'm part of the story. I don't know what to do. How do you connect to the massive project? So you've got to keep spiraling down. We've got to keep going lower. And when people don't know what to do, when people stay at the macro level, I think probably one of two things happens. Either one, the picture is so big, I would feel totally overwhelmed. I have no idea what I'm going to do, and people don't do anything. They, they, they hear a big story, but they don't know how they fit in the story, even though they, they know they're supposed to fit in the story. That's one thing that could happen. Here's another thing that could happen. This might be even more um, prevalent in Go, Go Get Em America. Um, you start finding things to do that you may or may not have been assigned to do. This, okay, I'm a part of this big story. And my, my favorite example these days is this notion of redeeming culture. I want to redeem culture. God, that we know the big story is that in the end, God is going to redeem all things. The whole earth is going to be recreated. And we don't realize that we have an assignment. And so we just start saying, well, if God's going to do that, it must be my job to be a part of redeeming the culture too. The Bible never tells you to redeem culture. 
It gives you an assignment. Jesus is going to redeem all things. The earth is waiting in the birth pangs for the revelation of the sons of God. When they resurrect, Jesus is going to change the whole world. In the meantime, you have an assignment. You have to know what that assignment is. And so, what is that assignment? We talked about last week, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18-20. I'm just going to read it for you very quickly. Matthew 28, 18-20. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There's your assignment, church. That's your assignment. Make disciples. Jesus, I said last week, Jesus is serious about the church making disciples. That's what we're all about because that's what we've been assigned to. The church's job and the ongoing kingdom mission is discipleship. So, I have three questions that I want to answer today in light of that. That's kind of where we ended last week. I still feel like we're pretty high in the air, though. So I've got three questions. I'm hoping to come closer to the ground. Hopefully we'll make it. Maybe we'll land. I don't know. Um, First question, how does discipleship fit into the kingdom story? If If our assignment in the story of the kingdom is discipleship, how does that fit into the story? Second question, what is the means of that discipleship that we've been assigned to? And third, why does that means work? Which will make more sense once we talk about what the means of discipleship is. Okay? What does disciple, how does discipleship fit into the story? What are the means of discipleship? How does the church do discipleship? And thirdly, why does the means that God has chosen for discipleship actually work? in creating disciples. So number one, how does discipleship fit into the kingdom story? Discipleship is Christ's conquest of the nations. It's Christ's conquest. Let's look at Matthew 28 again here. Um, Jesus came, said to them, you can't see what I've underlined here very well, but I'll, I'll point it out. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go. As you're going. Therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That's your main verb. We're going to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to, now I've underlined this, observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I've underlined this, I am with you always to the end of the age. I'm just, I'm just pointing out there's this going element, there's this uh, observance, fidelity to God's Word element, there's this I'm always going to be with you element. And when you read that in light of another commission in Joshua 1, some pieces come together. Here's Joshua chapter 1. Here's what God says to Joshua now that he's the leader of the Israel Israelite army. They're about to now conquer Canaan. And God is commissioning Joshua in the kingdom conquest. And here's what he says. Now therefore arise, go. Very similar. Go over this Jordan you and all the people, into the land I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Here's the establishment of God's kingdom in the land of Israel through conquest. I will be with you. I will not leave or forsake you. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do all that is written, written in it. Again, fidelity to God's word is a, big, is a big issue here. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So you've got this this similarity between the Great Commission, which is the launching of God's kind of uh, spread of the kingdom reality because of what Christ has done, and you've got allusions, apparently, to Joshua's commission to conquest. 
So here are some points of similarity that would help us understand. What Jesus is doing here is he's calling the church to conquest of the nations. Joshua is embarking on God's kingdom mission in the land of Canaan. The disciples are embarking on God's kingdom mission throughout all nations. Joshua just in Canaan, disciples all nations. The Lord's going to be with Joshua wherever he goes in this kingdom conquest. Lord Jesus is going to be with the disciples wherever they go in this conquest. Which means the mission is not going to fail. Here's some serious differences though. Joshua's conquest eliminates the enemies of God by literally destroying them. Takes their land, he kills their people, he destroys their culture. It's a total overhaul of all things. Jesus' conquest, this is also interesting too, Joshua, Jesus' name in Hebrew is Yeshua. You got the first Joshua and the second Joshua in their parallel conquests. One is a shadow, the other is a reality. Jesus' conquest eliminates the enemies of God, not by literally destroying them, but by turning them into disciples. That's awesome. He conquers them by turning them into disciples. The great commission is a command for the church to engage in a disciple-making conquest of the nations. Disciple-making conquest. The reason that it's so important to realize this. I've got on here a mark that I need to go to this slide. Okay, yeah, that's just what you... Make disciples. It's a conquest. The reason it's so important is because right now, there's so much talk out there. There really is. If you're on the blogosphere, or you're kind of tracking with what people are talking about these days, there's this huge movement of people that talk about the kingdom of God advancing when we do things like renew the city, or social justice, or clean up the environment, or deal with poverty. All of which are very good things that Christians absolutely ought to be engaged in and participate in out of love for our neighbors as we scatter from here. Absolutely. All of those things, in fact, might be the evidence or the indication that God's kingdom reign has moved in on somebody's heart and changed them so that now they, are, they, they feel compelled to go love people do good in society, but none of those things that I just mentioned, renewal of the city, social justice, cleaning up the environment, re- relieving poverty, and I mean, you could just add all kinds of very good social causes. Very good. All of those things, very good. None of them identified in themselves as the kingdom of God. I'll give you a good example, the free trade coffee industry. The free trade coffee industry, surprise or not, is very loving and very good for society and it is not the kingdom of God. It might be an indication that some very influential person in the, con- in the coffee industry has had the kingdom reign of Christ come over them. And now they are doing good in the world. But that industry is not the kingdom of God. Here's a second example. If some Christian organization were to somehow resolve world hunger, it would be a glorious and historic day we would celebrate, perhaps not with a feast. That was a joke. But it would not be the kingdom of God come to earth. It might be an indication that some person or persons with tremendous influence and tremendous resources, has God's gotten a hold of their life. They've come under the kingdom reign of 
the redemptive kingdom reign of Jesus Christ. They are one of His redeemed people. They gather to Christ Jesus, the temple, and they enjoy the presence of God through the Holy Spirit. They're living in the reality of the kingdom, and now they go and they do good in society. They use that influence, they use those resources, and they solve world hunger. But the, the, the solving of world hunger is not the kingdom of God come to earth. The kingdom of God is on the move and advancing in conquest over the nations when people become disciples of Jesus. That's when the nations are conquested. And it's only then when God is exercising redemptive rule over redeemed people who gather to the temple and enjoy the presence of God. And the church's job is to focus her efforts on that assignment. Make disciples. Make disciples. Make disciples. How are they going to do it? What's the means of discipleship? What's the means of the conquest? Well, Joshua, he conquested Canaan through physical conquest of the land, through, through holy war. That's what, that's what the conquest was. It was holy war. God ordained holy war. Culture war. The second Joshua advances God's kingdom reign in all the nations through a message. This is, this is really weird. He conquers the nations through a message. That's where we're going to park the rest of today. What is the means of discipleship? Here's the second question. What's the means of discipleship? The primary means of discipleship, the primary means of Christ's conquest of the nation is the proclamation of the message of the gospel. The church makes disciples by proclaiming a message. Now this is apparent in the Great Commission itself. We've got the emphasis on baptizing and teaching. But it's even more apparent in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is so cool. I read through it this week. Here's here's the church having received the assignment. Here they go. So you watch them start this great commission conquest of the nations through the book of Acts. And it's just awesome. Um, Look at this. Acts 1-3. Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days. So after he rises from the dead, he's with the disciples, appearing to them over a 40-day period of time. And look what he's doing. He's speaking about the kingdom of God. So he, so he, is, he is getting prepared to leave in the ascension, and the topic of discussion is his kingdom, which the disciples are very excited about because... As he gets ready to leave, here's what they ask him. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Is, is, the, is the consummated reality going to happen? Is Revelation, they wouldn't say it this way because Revelation hadn't been written yet, but is Revelation 21 and 22 going to happen now? Is this the time for the theocratic reign of Jesus Christ over the entire world? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Which is maybe, maybe you could just say, he says, well, no, it's not. <laughs> it's not time. But you will receive, you can't see this, but I've underlined, you will receive power. The kingdom advances in power. And it's the power of whom? When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So the Holy Spirit is going to give power for the kingdom work, which is not in its consummated form yet. The Holy Spirit gives power to do kingdom work right now. And here's what it's going to empower you to do. You will be my witnesses. The kingdom of God advances through a message. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So you you can set the Great Commission right next to this. Make disciples of all nations. 
I'm going to empower you by my Spirit to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. The discipleship of the nations takes place through the Spirit-empowered witness to the ends of the earth. That's how the conquest takes place. And the rest of the book of Acts records the beginning of Christ's conquest to the nations as it takes place through the proclamation of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. The church's assignment is so message-centered. A message. Very impractical. A message. It's not the only thing the church does. It's just what creates the church, and it's what fuels everything in the church. In fact, if you want to take away one point today, take away this point. The gospel message is what God uses to create and fuel the church. A message. To create the church and to fuel the church. And we'll spend time looking at each of those. Declaring news. Giving testimony. Offering witness. Telling the story. That's how he's going to conquer the nations. And I, I want to do two things now. I want to, one, not merely tell you this. I want to show it to you in the book of Acts. So I'm just going to hit a ton of scriptures real quickly. I want to show you how the kingdom advances through witness. And then I want to go to my third question, try to understand why it works. So we're getting really practical here. God's on a mission to reveal His glory so that people will celebrate Him. It takes place in the context of a kingdom story at the center of which is a Savior King who dies on the cross for the sins of His people. That kingdom was revealed in Eden, revealed in Israel, lost, lost. It's going to be what takes place for eternity in the end It's inaugurated, it's not consummated, and we have a role to play. And that role is very specifically assigned to us as being disciple makers. And we make those disciples through the proclamation of a message. I'm just trying to climb down the ladder here, or spiral down. So I want to show you That's what's happening in the book of Acts. Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples at Pentecost. And Peter preaches the first sermon in post-ascension history. Jesus went to heaven. Holy Spirit comes down. Peter preaches the first sermon. Here's what happens. Many other words. He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word, he bears witness with words, they receive the word, and are baptized. Great commission. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls conquered by Jesus through the proclamation of the gospel. Or, how about this one? Acts 4, 2-4. They were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They're teaching, they're proclaiming. They arrested them. This is Peter and John. Peter and John are arrested. They're put in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But, many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men alone came to about 5,000. You got 3,000 on one day, you got 5,000 on this day through the proclaimed word of God coming in power, conquering the nations. Okay. Um, Acts 4.18. They called them and charged them not to speak or teach. Okay, they, they are, the, the, the religious leaders are picking up on this. <laughs> you got to stop teaching. Verse 29. And now, Lord, they get out of jail, 
they are praying, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. So, okay, they're proclaiming signs and wonders are taking place. We'll come back to what role they play in this, in this story here. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And guess what happens? They continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Power to proclaim. That's what Jesus promised. That's what we have right now in this phase of redemptive history as Jesus is conquering the nations by way of the proclamation of the Gospel through the church for the sake of making disciples. Acts 5.20 Holy jailbreak. Okay, Peter and John are in jail. Actually, it just says the, the apostles were in jail. This angel of the Lord comes, sets them free, and this is what he tells them to do. Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. That's exactly what they go and do. Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. I mean, you just go through the book of Acts. I'm, I'm skipping dozens of passages that talk about the same thing in the book of Acts. This is what's happening in Acts. This is the birth of the church. Acts 6-7, the Word of God continued to increase. And guess what happens? The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Even a great number of the priests became obedient to the faith. Acts 8-4, there arose on that day, okay, so Stephen is um, martyred for what he's speaking. And as a result, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Remember, Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Well, here it goes. Because of persecution for what they're saying. They're scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Those who were scattered, guess what they did? They went about preaching the Word. Or, now when they had finished testifying and spoken the Word of the Lord, this is so funny, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the Gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. When they were done preaching the Gospel, then that's when they went and they started preaching the Gospel. I mean, it's just it's everywhere. The whole book. And immediately, this is after Paul becomes a disciple, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the Son of God, Acts 9.28. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, Acts 10.42. And he commanded us to preach preach to the people and testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness, and everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins, through his name. That's what they were commanded to preach for the conquest of the nations. Acts 14.3 So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord. Now watch, where, did, where do signs and wonders come into this whole birth of the church thing? Right here. They were speaking boldly for the Lord who bore wit- the Lord bore witness to the word of His grace. granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. They're speaking boldly this word of grace. And the Lord says, I want to validate that word of grace, and so I'm going to give them the power for signs and wonders. Even signs and wonders are for the purpose of validating this word, this message. It's going through a message. It's so weird to me. Acts 18. I just put this in here because these are our friends, the Corinthians. Here's here's the birth of the Corinthian church. Paul reasoned in the synagogues every Sabbath. Paul was occupied with the Word, testifying to the Jews that, that the Christ was Jesus. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed. 
and we're baptized. Awesome. We're getting to know the Corinthians. We've been working through 1 Corinthians for the last nine months or so. This is, this is, where, this is where it all started. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent. I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching. Conquering the nations. Okay, so that's disciples being created by the gospel message. But it not only creates disciples. It fuels disciples. It's not only people who don't know Jesus who need this message. We who love Christ need this same message. Acts chapter 20 verse 32. Uh, I'm sorry, looks like 40. <laughs> Wait a minute, 240. Okay, don't, don't pay attention to that, that verse reference. This is Acts 20, 32. Paul, this is the last time he's going to see the, the, the elders in Ephesus. He's got something to say. He's got a charge for them. This is what he says to them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now, I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace. I mean, that's what he's been preaching this whole time. And now he's got one last thing to say. And what does he say? I commend you to God and to the the word of his grace. And guess what that word of grace will do for the church in Ephesus? The word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance. Hey, New Hope, that's all I want. For you, for you to be built up, for us to be built up and to get the inheritance. I want to go home. I want us going home. And the word of God's grace is what takes us there. That's why Paul says, um, just prior to that in verse 24, I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify. Testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Because that's the assignment. That's the assignment. It's a message that creates and it's a message that fuels the church. And I think it's, I think it's strange. I mean, that's the secret weapon? You're just going to tell me something? That, this is the establishment of the most important institution on the face of the planet. This is the most important conquest campaign on planet Earth. And you're going to do it with an announcement? And so my third question is, how does that even work? How does that conquer anybody? We can see it scripturally that that's what happens. This is what the Bible says. But how does it function? How does a simple announcement fuel a church? How does it turn a rebel into a worshiper? How might God, even today, be turning rebels into worshipers through a sermon? How does that, how does that happen? So I, I have a medit- just a meditative thought here on how God uses the gospel to build the church. And I think one of the main things that happens in the gospel that God uses to conquer people is this. The, the gospel declares that something wonderful has happened for you. Now remember, humanity's, humanity's natural state is exile. John, John chapter 3, you know, John 3.16 is just this, this big, you know, 
verse that, that, that we love to quote because it's just compact gospel. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. The end of John chapter 3 makes the opposite. The, what, what happens if you don't believe? It's, it's a little more harsh. This is what it says. John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That, the, that's what we're born into. We're, we're east of Eden. We're under wrath. We're in exile. We're not God's people. We don't enjoy His presence. We don't like Him. And for various reasons, you know, because of the Holy Spirit or because of our conscience or because of God's general revelation or various reasons, most people are somewhere on a spectrum of realizing that things aren't right. And, and over here on, on this far side of the spectrum here, I've, I've got the person who at least realizes I'm not perfect. Hey, I'm not perfect. Most people know something's not right and are at least willing to say I'm not perfect. Maybe a few people who, who would argue with that. but And then on the other side of the spectrum, you've got people who are very aware of the reality right now and they, and they feel like, or they recognize that they are desperately wicked and doomed. Like the gods are not happy with me. So not only are we in this exiled state naturally, not only do we know that something's not right, but I'm sorry, not only not only are we there, but we also know that something's not right on some spectrum of awareness. Now, throughout history, people in one form or another have tried to do something about this problem. And, and your efforts might depend on where you are on the spec- spectrum. If you're, if you're the I'm not perfect person, but nobody's perfect. Like, I'm not perfect, but it's not really that big a deal because nobody's perfect anyways. But maybe you still feel some need to kind of, you know, just do some good things. You know, just, just to make sure that you're not really that bad of a person. To prove you're not really that bad of a person. So you like like coffee beans for the soldiers at Starbucks or something, you know? You maybe let, you know, you, you, I, you know, when people try to cut in, I just let them in when I'm in traffic. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a good guy. Or maybe you go to your school, your kid's school events or whatever. You, whatever it is, you, you've got this list of things that you do to just kind of prove to yourself, ease your conscience, I'm not that bad of a person. Because you know, you know something's not right. And, and the problem is you, you just got to keep building that list. The longer you go, if God gives you grace, the longer you go, you'll start realizing, uh, I got to start doing some really good things. For some of the stuff that I, I mean, I mean, I went to all my kids' plays, but I don't know if that really makes up for the fact that I just really lost control and 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 screamed and was really verbally abusive last week. And you're in the heart, you're wrestling with guilt, and you're trying you're trying to do something to deal with that. Now. Maybe you even, by God's grace, get over to this point and you realize I'm desperately wicked and doomed. And then you might even try religion. Now I'm gonna, I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna start doing some meditation. And if you live in Boulder, Colorado, I'm gonna buy some crystals. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, I'm, I'm gonna meet with the priest. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I took my first communion this week. And, uh, I'm gonna. I, I faithfully attend church, and I'm. I'm gonna um, spend some time with the pastor. And and you're doing this. You got. You're making your list there too. And the same problem in both situations is this: you're trying to do something for yourself to deal with the guilt issue of your sin. 
That's how humanity tries to fix the problem that the wrath of God is upon us. It's always some attempt to climb the wall back into Eden. And very few people get to that blessed point of realizing, I'm stuck. If you feel stuck right now, it might be because God is doing a very good work in your life. Because you're stuck. I don't know if you feel it or not. You're stuck. If you don't know Jesus, you cannot climb that wall. It's way too high. We, we just scamper around trying to find all these ways to climb that wall, to get right with God, to do something with this guilt. May God give you the grace this morning to realize, hey, you're stuck. You cannot do it. But by God's grace, some people realize it, and they realize that self can't fix the problem, and the announcement of the gospel declares that something wonderful has happened for you. For for you. you. You've been trying to do it for yourself. The Gospel says, I have done it for you. In the Gospel, God makes an offer to you. He provides something for you that you can't provide for yourself. Namely, the gift of righteousness which was earned by Jesus and is now given to you so that you can have favor with the Father. That's good news to somebody who has come up empty-handed. And the, the Gospel declares that this has happened for you and it's happened outside of you. You make no contribution to it. It happened thousands of years ago. It's independent of your record. It's independent of your failures. It's independent of your last week or your last year. It's news about an event that's already over. And it takes the record of what happened this last week and this last year and it says, I'm going to cancel that record. You've got your list, all these good things. The Gospel says, I'm going to cancel that record because your list actually only got you into further debt. I'm going to cancel that record. I'm going to take the record of Jesus Christ, who already ran the race perfectly. I'm going to put it in your account. I'm going to credit it to you. And His righteousness can count for you. How's that sound? It happens for you, it happens outside of you, it happens independently of you, and that is the gospel. You can't contribute anything to it, you can't do anything to purchase it. God only gives it as a gift. Would you like to receive it, is the question that he asks. That's called grace. The Bible calls grace. And it's the announcement of this grace, the word of grace, that God uses to create disciples. It's an open invitation to traitors to receive amnesty. You know what amnesty is? Amnesty is when a, a, a country or a state pardons a guilty party for some sort of offense pardons them and allows them to return to the source of an innocent, to, to the uh, status of, a, of an innocent citizen. So, for example, Andrew Johnson in May of 1865, the end of the Civil War, proclaims, made this amnesty proclamation to the to people of the Confederate Army. I, Andrew Johnson, President of the United States, do proclaim and declare that I hereby grant to all persons who have directly or indirectly participated in the existing rebellion amnesty and pardon 
with restoration of all rights of property. This is what the Gospel offers. Amnesty. Pardon. Treat you like you're an innocent citizen. That's what God says to the sinner who's in exile. If you want to. And it's through that announcement that traitors become followers. It's that announcement in which rebels become citizens and nations are conquered as men, women, children flock to Jesus Christ, trust the promise of His pardon and pledge their loyalty to Him. And that's kingdom advancement and conquest by means of a mere message. I think that's so awesome. But let me close with this last point. I'll be quick. Lest you think that the thrust of this message is that you need to all go evangelize. Which you do. That's part of it. You need to, you need to share your faith with others. You need to make that proclamation. But it's not the main point of this morning's message. The main point, the main thrust of what I want for New Hope Fellowship here is, to, is for us to understand that it's that same gospel message that fuels believers. I commend to you, I commend you to God and the word of His grace which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance. He's saying this to believers. I want the word of grace to be in this church to build us up and give us the inheritance. How does that work? We are never supposed to move away from the word of this grace. But it's not just because we're not supposed to. Not just some rule. It's because we need it functionally. New Hope will, will, will live or die functionally to the extent that we maintain the centrality of this word of grace. And I want to know why. How does an announcement fuel discipleship? I'm, I'm guessing that some of you probably don't understand why. It's my guess. Evangelism I get. Right? I understand that God conquers the nations through the proclamation of the gospel and makes new disciples through that. But why do, why do we need the ongoing announcement of the gospel? Right? I've already believed the gospel. I already know the gospel. I already trust in Jesus. Why do I need to keep hearing this gospel again and again? I'm going to give you two good reasons in closing here why we need to hear the announcement of the gospel why the gospel message is central to ongoing discipleship. And number one is that some of us need to hear the gospel again because we just had a really awful week. Right? Can anybody relate to this? Some of us did not have a good week. You were a bad father this week. You hate your parents. You were a lazy worker. Bitter, snappy, through a temper tantrum. You don't read your Bible. You spend way more time complaining about your life than you spend giving thanks to God for it. I heard some guy talk about this this week. In the sex act, eight million sperm. One of them became your life. And there could have been 8 million other people who had the opportunity. And all you do is complain about your life. I 
And even though you know Christ and you've received His pardon and you enjoy fellowship with God, sometimes you act like a traitor still. And not only do you act like a traitor, but you start thinking that God must be really disgusted with you. And, and, and of course, you know, you know I'm not outside the kingdom. I know He's not going to throw me outside the kingdom. You're not thinking that way, but you, you, you just can't get it out of your head that, that the Father just really, when you're like that, that He really doesn't want to have anything to do with you. You know, shame on you. And some of you need to hear the Gospel today because you come in here with shame on you. And the Gospel says to you, I want to offer something to you quite apart from your past week. I want to offer to you something that you cannot provide for yourself. Something wonderful has happened for you, believer. It happened for you. It happened outside of you. What you need in order to have the Father's smiling face upon you is far more than a good week. And guess what? Jesus has done it. And guess what? You can have it. That's what the Gospel says. Right now, believer, you can have it. You can have the pleasure of your Father because of the righteousness of the Son of God and what He has done apart from you. Do you want it? I'm here to announce to you right now the righteousness of Christ for you apart from you and the pardon of your sins. Have it. Enjoy your Father. You need that Gospel. Legitimate failures. And that announcement is here to fuel you to start again. And we need to be reminded of it. That's just the fact. We just need to be reminded of it again and again and again and again. And you need me to do that. We need to do that for one another. We need to minister the gospel to one... Okay, we're getting real practical here. We need to minister this gospel to one another. We need it functionally. We're not going to live without it. Some of you came in here today, you've got this burden of guilt on your shoulders. You can't even take a step of love toward your husband or wife or children or anybody else in this church. And Jesus just wants to take that off of you. We need the gospel. And when someone's feeling discouraged and heavy about personal failures in, the li- in their life, the church is not called to help that person have greater self-confidence and to have some vague sense of how special they are because they're the princess of God and the, and the little prince of God. Some, some vague, you're special, build you up self-confidence. That's not, what, that's not what builds disciples. What builds disciples is the Gospel. We must be masters at ministering this precious gift to one another. New Hope. We have to be a church body who loves the Gospel. Who knows the Gospel. We've got to remind ourselves in the morning. You wake up maybe like me and your mind is just flying with worries. I was telling the worship team before service started today, sometimes my heart is like, I feel like I've got to worry about something. I gotta find something to worry about. I'm just, you know, you gotta, you gotta stop yourself there and set your eyes on Christ. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves. We need to minister the gospel to our spouses. We need to minister the gospel to our children. We need to minister the gospel in our small groups. We need to minister the gospel from the pulpit. We need to be a gospel people. Amen.
Amen. Some of us need to hear the gospel because we had an awful week. And number two, some of us need to hear the gospel because we had a great week. And we come in today and we're just feeling real good about ourselves because we just had a great week. No major sin, no blow-ups. We got along well with our spouses. We did a good job at work, maybe even shared the gospel with somebody. I mean, we're just feeling like, hey, we're... I'm on the mission. I'm doing what I ought to be doing. The Lord is just good. Like, you know, the, the blessed be your name. Blessed be your name when the sun is shining down on me. Like the sun is shining down on me right now. And you're just, you're feeling good. And you need to hear the gospel because the gospel says, hey, there is no such thing as a really great Christian. There's no room for boasting at the cross. Hey, you're, this is all privilege for you. You need to be reminded. It's only by grace. It's only the grace of God that you're standing right now. And He gave you grace this week. Praise God. And He gave it to you because Jesus purchased it for you. And He brought you back into the presence of God where you could be strengthened by the Holy Spirit. It's all grace. It's all grace. And some of you need to be reminded. I I had a friend who used to say to me, I just don't, you're just, I just don't get why we always need to hear the gospel. And I was thinking, man, this guy doesn't understand that he's sinful. (laughs) Just forgets. Probably had a good week. We need the gospel. You want to be on mission? Be a gospel person. You want to take part in what God's doing in the world? Be a gospel person. Be a gospel person to those who don't know Christ. Be a gospel person to those who do know Christ. Be a gospel person to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. Capture those thoughts. Remind yourself. All I have is Christ. And that's enough. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for inviting us to be a part of it. And we pray that you would take this word of grace and that you would cause it to bear much fruit. I thank you for this wonderful church body. And I ask that you would teach us how to more masterfully minister the gospel in our small groups, when we gather for prayer with one another, As we worship, thank you so much even this morning for how you orchestrated the worship to just be so focused on what you have done, Lord Jesus. We thank you for your word. We pray that, Holy Spirit, you would give it power even now to convict of sin, to call us to repentance to remind us of the sufficiency of Christ for sinners. And it's in His name that we ask these things.